Hey, my friend, have you known your pet in a past life? Well, believe it or not, a lot of people have. You can check out case histories and find out more about your connections to your little fuzzballs in my book, Past Lives with Pets. Check it out and find out today. The Healing Arts Program is not intended as a substitute for consultation with a licensed medical or mental health professional. The listener should regularly consult a physician or mental health professional in matters relating to his or her health, and particularly with respect to any symptoms that may require diagnosis or medical attention. This program provides content related to educational, medical, and psychological topics. As such, listening to the program implies your acceptance of this disclaimer. Welcome to Healing Arts. I'm your host, Dr. Shelley Kerr. Welcome to the show, my dear friend. I hope you had an amazing week. So we are releasing today another one of my episodes where I'm going to talk to one of my fiction writing friends who has worked as a successful fiction author. I am really fascinated by all kinds of different artists and writers because just their creative process and everything they're doing. I just got done. I don't know if you've heard about this, but There was a really fantastic documentary that just aired on PBS about the life of the uh, Nobel Prize winning fiction writer Ernest Hemingway. I mean, he was a real character. Um, And this is a solid six hour documentary. It is absolutely fascinating. Um, Just seeing the creative process and then seeing the life that he lived, it was very interesting. So it's I don't know. I don't know if you like it or not. I just think it's all very, very fascinating. The other thing I wanted to mention to you, I forgot to tell you last time we talked, but back on March 25th, the award-winning novelist Larry McMurtry passed away. He's the author of Lonesome Dove, and he's kind of a Wild West writer, but he lives in this town, or he lived in this town called Archer City, Texas. And he owned this huge bookstore. And so several years ago, they had this big article in the Dallas Morning News that he was inviting everybody to come out to his town where all of his books were in these stores and actually buy some of them because they weren't really for sale. This was like his personal collection. But he knew that his kids just had no clue what to do with all of the books that he owned. Some of them were rare and he just had everything. So we went out there and it was so amazing because it was this this old Texas downtown square and he owned a lot of the buildings. And so when he passed away last month, there was a picture of him on the front cover of the Dallas Morning News in this white shirt and these um, suspenders just standing in the, the stacks of books in this bookstore. And that's exactly what he looked like when I had seen him several years ago during this book sale. And I just think it's so fascinating, um, you know, just to get to a chance to see these famous people and to hear their stories and everything. And so, you know, I, I just have experienced that a lot of my friends who write fiction have had a really hard time, as I've mentioned before on this program, because a lot of people really aren't going to interview them unless they do win the Pulitzer Prize or something, which a lot of them aren't. But My friend Sandy Steen is just one of the most wonderful and interesting people I know, just like Jana Susan May and some of the other people who I'm going to start interviewing on this show. So I just think of them as artists, um, and I just think it's fascinating. So I hope you will enjoy my interview with Sandy Steen. And so let's check it out. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Healing Arts. So we are in the middle of interviewing fiction writers. And today I'm happy to be joined by my friend, Sandy Steen. Sandy is a multi-published romance writer who I have been friends with for with many, many years. So Sandy, welcome to Healing Arts. Thank you, Shelley. Glad to be here. Thanks for being here. So here's a thing I wanted to talk to you about that I don't know that we ever have, but don't you think that romance writing is beneficial to humanity because it shows people have problems, but they always work it out in the end. I think a good romance, no matter who writes it, if it's a good one, is hours well spent. Yeah, I think they're uplifting. I think, you know, people make fun of the Hallmark movies, but it's the same kind of thing. Right. You know what you're getting when you pick up a romance novel. You know it's going to end happy. The trick is to get you to fall in love with the characters so that they can tell your story as a writer or as a reader to really get you involved in that story. Yeah, like I say, and like you just said, you know it's going to end happy, but that's okay. That's great as far as I'm concerned. I think it's fantastic. So how did you ever start to write romance novels in the first place? Oh, gosh. I was always a, a voracious reader, even from a very young age. And um, the summer I turned 12, uh, I heard my mother talk about, uh, for years, uh, Gone with the Wind. Now, she was talking about the movie, but I went to the library and... Uh, went to check out Gone with the Wind in the library and told me, she said, oh, honey, this book's way above you. She said, you, you won't enjoy it at all. So despite her, I read it twice before I brought it back. So I got to the point when I was in high school, uh, through encouragement from some teachers, to read the classics. And so that's where my focus was until I got married and uh, had my kids and I had I quit working was home raising my kids and I was there was a bookstore used bookstore close by and I was buying them by the bag so I would read three four or five books a week and I got to the point I was reading the historical romances hmm. because I am a history lover on top of that so the girl that was running the store said you ought to try these contemporary romances they're really good and I said no you know that's not for me she said try one and you'll you'll fall in love I, I promise so I did and actually the first book I tried was Sandra Brown one mm. of her very first and um, I at that point had no idea that she would influence me as strongly as she did but um I fell in love sure and so I got to the point to where when I finished one I would say I would not have made that character do that. That really didn't ring true. Or I would not have ended it that way. I would have done thus and so. And I began to meet people at the bookstore. And we kind of started up a little, for lack of a better word, club. There were four or five of us ladies, all mothers and trying to raise our kids and um, trying to get reading time. And so we would review books and say, no, you got to read this one. You got to read this one. So that's really how it started. And um, I went to a seminar that Sandra Brown taught on how to write a romance novel. And thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it and just couldn't get enough of it. There was also a lady there who was starting a chapter of Romance Writers of America in Ulysses. And mm -hmm. so she said the first meeting is going to be here and this time, et cetera, et cetera. So I went, signed up, and that was the beginning of it all. It was just, it, it just kind of rolled out from there. By that time, I had already started um, writing. And um, I think because I'd read so many romances by that time, when I finished the book and took it to someone to read, they really gave me high praise, which is all great. 
But then I went back to the bookstore one day and I picked up a book and I opened it and there was my story. It was so similar to the story that I had created that I thought I must have been influenced by all of this stuff that I've read. And so when I was talking to Sandra Brown about it at the, at the seminar, she said, well, look at it this way. What you wrote was good enough or something similar was good enough to get published. Look at it from that point of view, rather than, oh my God, I've screwed up. So I took that to heart and started really honing my craft, reading everything I could read on writing. Uh, and then by that time, the chapter had started. And so that was like that gathering of romance writers mm -hmm. every month was like finding gold. I mean, literally, it was like I couldn't wait for those Saturday meetings to roll around. I had to get there. I had to be with those people. I had to talk about writing. It was just, um, it was just wonderful. Everybody was new at it. Everybody was working hard. So it was really a great deal. Really. I loved it. And yeah, that the was first, first time I went to one, they were all eating chocolate. And that's what kind of sold me. Really? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not a chocolate lover, so I know that's a flaw in my character. But uh, yeah, but it's the same thing. It's that meeting of the mind of being with other writers, sharing ideas. And um, I mean, we were all, well, have you seen, have you heard about this conference? Have you seen this book? It was just a continuous flow of information and sharing it. Uh, I don't think I've ever experienced anything like that in my life before or since. So you have been published by Harlequin which I think is amazing. And I'm wondering what you think now at this current moment, what's happened to the book industry compared to when, Oh man! you know, back in the day when it was a totally different animal. So what do you think about things like well, Amazon and et cetera, self-publishing and all the other stuff? I originally sold the silhouette, which mm. was later bought by Harlequin, but you know, when you're talking about Harlequin, actually, when you're talking about romance, you're talking about category romance, and a lot of people don't understand what that means. It simply means there are, in the romance genre, there are different slots or categories. It's either a sweet romance, or it's a romance with some thriller mixed in, romance with some mystery, or uh, some really erotic romance. So the, hence the definition of category romance, but it's boy meets girl, boy and girl have a conflict, boy and girl resolve it, and they live happily ever after. The trick is that the characters have to change from beginning, from chapter one to they lived happily ever after. They must change, both of them, not just one, but both characters, uh, and not just Sometimes that's uh, physically as well as psychologically. Depends mm -hmm. on your story. But yeah, I wrote for Harlequin for many years. Um, I did two uh, continuity projects for them, which I don't know if anybody's familiar with that. I, I'm not. T tell okay. us what that is. Um, it's a group of authors who write from a Bible. That's what it's called. It's, it's the outline of the story and the characters. And they say, okay, we've got 12 books here. Pick which one you want to write. Here's some characters, take a look at this. And so they solicit authors to be part of these projects. I don't think they're doing them anymore. But they were very successful at one point. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I did, uh, that was my, probably my introduction. After that, I sold to, um, uh, it wasn't the hottest, uh, sexiest line, but pretty close to it. 
it's called Temptation. And oh, yeah. So I, yeah, I, did, I wrote most of my stories for Temptation. Uh, and I had a great, great editor. Her name was Brenda Chen. She's still editing. Not for Harlequin, but she's still editing. Uh, she was the best I, that, that I ever worked with, ever. Just really superb. So, and that makes a big difference when you're writing for a house like Harlequin. They were not the most author-friendly house to write for. Uh, there are horror stories about Harlequin. And I have to say, a fair amount of them are true. Mm -hmm. so, you know, the thing about writing for uh, Harlequin, because Harlequin now is probably the single largest um, publisher of romance in the world. Um, when I started publishing, there were they were publishing between 125 and 150 new titles every month. That's how many houses were active in romance. Now we're down to like three or four. So all of those slots that were available for new writers, the market is just, it's imploded, not exploded. Um, the joke was always, when, you, when I was publishing for Hologram, that there were 10 people waiting in line to take my play. Well, now there are probably 50 to 100 right. waiting to take my play. So it's one of those things where the market's changed so drastically, and not just with self-publishing, although that was a biggie and remains a biggie. Um, the whole... Uh, demographics of, well, demographics period. Um, there was a time when category romance in particular, you could aim it, market it to a certain demographic. Now the world has changed so drastically, everybody reads on multiple levels. It's not like somebody just reads romance, although there are still people out there um, who do that. But by and large, people read romance, they read mystery, they read uh, political stuff, they read everything. It, the landscape, if you want to call it that, of publishing has changed drastically. So the people who are trying to publish today have got a much more difficult time of it, I think, than I did. I was fortunate enough to be involved in what they now call the golden age of romance writing. You know, it was wonderful. The Romance Writers of America put on a national conference every year. Huge. They taught us how to write romance. They taught us about characterization, about plotting. It, it was wonderful. But I don't think people today have that kind of opportunity. That's one of the reasons why when I meet a new writer, I really try to encourage them to go to these conferences and really learn their craft. Right. Because there's no substitute for that. I Everywhere I go, uh, there are people who say, I've always wanted to write a romance. And when I was younger, I tried to be as gentle as possible. Nowadays, I want to say, then fine, sit down and write one. <laughs> because there was a point in time where people thought that we just dashed these novels off between uh, sending our kids off to school and watching soap operas. <laughs> sorry. The Young and the Restless. Yeah, there you go. Days of our lives. Yes, fans yeah. through the hourglass. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Fans through the hourglass. Yeah, and you just right. put the wash in the dryer, and now you're ready to crank it out. Oh yeah. You know. God, if it had only been that easy. 
Oh my Lord. You got two school-aged kids. You got a house to run, meals to cook, and you're trying to write a book. And I didn't even have, at that point, I didn't even have an office. I had my computer set up in the dining room. And my kids were running through there on a regular basis. It was pretty much chaos. But anyway, it's not as easy as it looks. And you know the old saying, if everybody could write, everybody would be on the New York Times bestseller list. That's right. That ain't even going to happen. Writing is, there is a certain skill to writing. There's no question about that. But if you don't have the love of it, the drive to do it, and the tiny spark of talent, don't quit your day job because it won't happen. It's determination and it's concentration. And the least of it really is talent because it's like anything else. People used to say, you know, well, uh, how did you learn to write? Or no, where do your stories come from? That's my favorite. That's my favorite. <laughs> oh, where good. do your stories come from? And you don't want to say, you pull them out of your behind, you know. <laughs> um, but the fact of the matter is, most writers don't know where their stories come from. They just appear or the idea of them pops into your head. The uh, first mystery I wrote, uh, I had this, all of a sudden, I had this conversation pop into my head. And I knew it was a, my hero. And I knew he was at a cocktail party. And he said his name. He said, my name is Parker Doyle. And uh, I teach at the local college. And um, uh, I write mysteries. Oh, yeah. And did I mention I'm a werewolf? Have you tried the cheese puffs? <laughs> now, come on. <laughs> I thought I was losing my mind. I called one of my writer friends. And I said, I think I've slipped <laughs> right off the edge. But that was the conversation that was in my head. And I wrote a whole book based on that conversation. So I don't have an answer to that question. Where do your stories come from? Because they come from inside me, inside my head. Or it may be something I saw two years ago. And all of a sudden, it comes back into my head. And I can build a story on it. Or not, by the way. I had some <laughs> ideas that just don't work. You think they're going to work. You're really trying to make them work. Yeah. Those are the ones that have to go in the trash. Right. So when you, now that, you know, you and I know each other because we are in a mystery writers yeah. group. And so do you enjoy the mystery writing now more? than you did the romance? I mean, I know it's a different time in your life, but do you like the mystery yes, better? No, <clears throat> I miss um, writing romances. And I think I always will include some level of romance in my mystery. Right. Um, but when I was writing for Harlequin, it got to the point that it was so cutthroat that it, it became almost painful they wanted um, more and more sex in the books, more and more graphic sex. And they wanted it on the front end. They wanted it in the first chapter, if I was willing to do that. And not every story lends itself to that. Right. You know, um, I've written a couple of marriage of convenience uh, books that the characters didn't have sex until almost the end, very end of the book. Well, Harlequin was really pushing. Um, the market sort of went through a phase where it was like, it was pre um, Fifty Shades of Grey, but it was that level of stuff. And they were pushing all of their authors that direction. And 
I finally got to the point where I thought, I, that's not something I want to do anymore. And so for a whole year, I didn't write a word. And all of a sudden, I got really, my husband said, you're really cranky. <laughs> I said, am I really? Because I'm not usually a cranky person. And he said, right. maybe you need to go back to writing. And that's exactly what I did. And that's exactly what cured it. Because I think if you're a writer, and I can use that term as somebody who writes, I don't care if that's in your journal or something you want to publish. It's in your blood. It's in your heart. And you can't not write. That's right. You know, it's like, it's almost an addiction. Yes. And yes. not always good ones, as you well know. Because we've all had those days where we wish we could do anything else but write. Yes, absolutely. I even at one point wrote a whole book and I had to call my editor and say, you don't want this book. It's bad. You don't want it. And unfortunately, there was some stuff going on in my life that caused a lot of stress. And so that's the other thing. We're all human. Right. And what's going on in our real lives affects our work. It either slows it down or it darkens it or lightens it as the case may be but that's just part of the human condition you know we can't help that but I had a deadline and I was striving to meet that deadline and at the end of it I knew it was trash <laughs> so did your editor read it and did you give her a chance to say we love it first, she read the first three chapters uh because that's what I had sent her. And uh, she said, well, we need to do a little work. And I said, no, we don't. <laughs> this one is going in the garbage, file 13. And she said, you know, this is the mark of a, a really good editor, by the way. She said, I've worked with you long enough that I trust your judgment. If you're telling me it's not working, then it's not working. And it's not worth my time and yours to try to make it. Right. So I said, fine, I'll send you a whole new proposal in a couple of months and we'll go from there. She said, works for me. So I owed him a book. I was contractually uh, committed for a book. I was on a three book contract. Mm -hmm. and, but, you know, as a writer, you have to be able to look at your own work. It's one of the most difficult things a writer has to learn to do is to edit their own work. Yes. <laughs> and I write, um, I, it's a three-step process for me. I start with, it was a dark and stormy night and end with, and they live happily ever after. But that's the skeleton. Right. Then I go back and put the clothes on it. The fashion. Then I go back and put the jewelry on it. So when I'm finished this three-step process, then I've got my book. Then I send it to uh, a professional editor, um, our good friend, Laurie. Our Bob. friends, yes. Yeah, Laurie is um, probably singularly one of the best editors I've ever dealt with, and book doctor, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, Absolutely, she's amazing. And as many books as I've written, which is 20, uh, 21 actually, I still get upset when I get her back, her work back because I always have to fix stuff. Dang it. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Yes, there's that. But it's very difficult to learn to edit your own work because you've created it. It's your baby. You want to leave all this good stuff in, but you need a pair of trained eyes to say <clears throat> the flow is not good here you right. need to pick up the pace or um we're in chapter six and you said in chapter three blah 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 you can't make that work 
So it's really one of your most valuable things to do is to have somebody with fresh eyes get at your work that knows what they're doing. But Absolutely. the hardest thing for me was to learn how to edit from the screen. I always edited from a hard copy. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and I still like a hard copy, but I've taught myself to edit from the screen. So, uh, but that was hard for me. I don't know why, but I guess everybody has their own little stones they trip over. So. I think the word program, you know, it didn't have all the little comment bubbles and all the stuff that it has now, though, mm. back in the day. You know, this is all new. Hi. So I can see where that would be. Sometimes also, I mean, I get sick of staring at the screen and it is easier yeah. to see it in print. But I used to do that, too. But then it's just such a pain. Then I got to go retype it into the screen anyway. So I'm with you. Yeah. Then eventually you just have to adapt, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Adapt or die, as they say. Yes. Yeah. My first computer was an old K-Pro, had a nine-inch screen. Yeah, and the screen was encased in a case where the actual, it was a CPU unit. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. And I had a dot matrix printer. That tells you how old Yay, I am. I know yeah. those. Yes. And, and that thing sounded like a Thompson submachine gun when it was working. Yay. But I... I wrote two books on that before I got a bigger computer, uh, you know, and it was unbelievably expensive. It was like $3,000 for that K-Pro yeah. and the printer. So, I mean, and it had, I think it had 64 I mean, there are watches. <laughs> more memory than that these days so it's hard to believe myself, but. yeah it is hard to believe how it's changed i get really attached to certain computers that i have and i get very upset when they're just simply outdated which i've got actually a couple of them right now that oh makes me cry because you think you know you you spend so much time on them i mean you do get attached to them kind of well and writing is like um well i kind of liken it to cooking in a way there are people who are really good cooks but it's because they cook every day they experiment with their recipes they focus on what they're doing. They pay attention to the ingredients. Writing's like that. There's a flow to it, a rhythm, and mm -hmm. a knack, if you want to call it. That's like, my grandmother made biscuits every day of her life, and they were the most magnificent things. They were so light and fluffy. Mine are hockey pucks, because I only make them <laughs> about four times a year. So I don't do that. That's, right. you know, I don't have that knack, that flow. Uh, it's almost like you've got a feel for making those biscuits when you're working with your hands. It's the same thing with writing. Yes. If you don't do it on a regular basis, you lose connection with it. And without that connection, um, it's difficult. And so a lot of people give up because they don't do it but sporadic. If you really want to write a book, then you need to write a book. You know, you need to sit down. Our mutual friend was committed to writing uh, 30 minutes a day. And she was in the emergency room um, and pulled out her tablet. They put her on a gurney because they didn't have a room for her. She pulled out her tablet and did her 30 minutes by hand. Wow. That's commitment. There it is. But yeah, I've tried to tell, you know, I, I, I think you know that I taught a nonfiction writing course mm -hmm. and it's now in my online school. And over the years that used to be in person back before hey, yeah, we were all locked up in our houses. Yeah. And I would teach a whole day class and I had somebody say, okay, well, if I can't get on the New York Times, 
then I don't even want to start doing this. And I'm thinking, okay, you can't do it then because it's not going to, you know, maybe it happens to one in a billion people, but the truth is you have to like the journey of actually doing it. And I'm like you, like I have an artistic compulsion that I sometimes wish I didn't have, but I also get, oh my gosh, I can get very cranky and I'm not even a cranky person. It's like something that has to happen. Like it is almost addictive. It's painful. I look at my work. I want to throw it out the window. I'm sick of looking at it after trying to self-edit, you know, and stuff like that. So I hear everything you're saying. And I, I think that some people just think that you know, that if they're not at the top of the heap after one attempt, then it's not worth doing. That's a great goal. If you want, you know, if that's your goal, that's fine. Uh, but if you don't love writing for the sake of writing, then you need to just quit it. Right. Because if that's your only focus is making the New York Times best-selling list, a, it's not going to happen, and B, you're not going to be happy to. Right. I long ago gave up thinking about the New York Times bestseller list. Um, I just I, I knew that wasn't going to happen. And then self-publishing came along, and that kind of again changed the landscape. And we're all still kind of struggling with that because when I wrote for Harlequin they did whatever publicity was needed they edited your book they did the cover the back copy everything was done for you now the kicker on that was you had no say so over the cover right uh really had no say so over the title i was very fortunate that they kept most of my titles but it was the publisher's ball game from beginning to end. There was no question. Um, right. It was restrictive to say the least. Uh, but that's the way Harlequin operated. They still do, uh, pretty much. But that restrictive atmosphere. When it's the only game in town, you learn how to work within that. Right. Um, You know what you're getting. You know what you're signing up for. But now the self-publishing, you have to pay for your own book covers. You've got to pay for your own editing. And you've certainly got to cover your own marketing. And so a lot of writers have found it very difficult to wear all those hats. And I have to say, I'm one of them. I don't do a lot of publicity because that's just not something I really wanted to mess with. And unless you can afford to hire a publicist to do that kind of stuff for you, you know, it, it's it's an uneven landscape these days. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it's changing. It's hard. Yeah. Every day it's changing. That's for sure. You know, you think you know how to do this, how to maneuver, and two days later, somebody jerks the rug out from underneath you because they say, well, now we've got this whole new app that does this, that, or the other thing, and it's just uh, kind of mind-blowing. I completely concur with that, yes. (laughs) It's uh, never a dull moment out here, that's for sure. No, uh, and you... I have attended several marketing seminars and basically by the time you get out of the seminar, (laughs) the stuff's changed. That's right. I mean, it's really bizarre. Um, uh, This whole, that's, I think that's why if you don't love writing, if you're creative, maybe you need to find another outlet. Uh, But if you're just writing to make money, or to make the New York Times list. There are better ways to do it these days. <laughs> My Bitcoin, you know? Yeah, right. I know. I completely concur with all of that. It's just, a, it's too hard to make this whole scenario work if you don't love it. And that's just the bottom line. 
Yeah, you're not going to stick it out if you're not loving it. That's for sure. I, you know, I've never been to a cocktail party or a gathering of any kind that somebody, actually, I've never taught a seminar that I didn't get the same question of how much money can you expect to make? <laughs> I'm sorry. And I used to sidestep that question. Particularly when I was teaching, because you've got 30, 40 people in a room, and uh, and you don't want to be rude, you know. Right. My mother taught me never to be rude. So I have since developed a different approach to that. And so my response is if I worked for ATT, would you ask me what my salary is? The same thing. It is. It is. But yet every seminar I've ever taught, I get the money question. The money question. You got to wait for it. We used to take bets on who in the room would be the one to ask. Little side wager. Yeah. Well. But you know it's going to happen. So it's yeah, only a matter of which one's going to ask it. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And here's the bottom line. What they paid me, I sold my first book in 1985 came out in 1986. What they paid me for that first book doesn't anywhere relate to what they pay for first books now. Exactly. You know, back then, money was, um, Harlequin in particular, uh, they were paying ten and $15,000 advances for some of these books. I didn't get that when I first started, but a lot of people did. Um, but you reach a ceiling. That's another thing with Harlequin in particular. They always wanted you to sign a multi-book contract. However, it was only 500. If they paid you $10,000 for the first book, they only paid you 10,500 for the next one and 11,000 for the next one. So it went up in increments of $500. However, people on the outside looking in at the publishing world, think that everybody's going to make a million dollars if they write a book. Gosh, don't I wish. Don't you wish? Yeah, right. Yeah. There's definitely yeah. a lot of... Uh, and it all depends on the royalties. Yeah. It all depends on the royalties. And back then, they paid us uh, 6% of the cover price. So if the book sold for rounded up to $3, we got 6% of that. So you know how many books you have to sell to make $15,000 or $10,000? A lot, a lot. Back then, the print runs, which is the number of books they print, would range anywhere from 100,000 to 250,000 because there were tons of outlets, uh, borders, and all these, excuse me, I should have that, all these different places. That would sell books no longer exist. Right, that's right. So the, uh, excuse me just a minute, I'll call you later. Uh, We've got it down to basically Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and Barnes and Noble will struggle. So I don't know how much longer they're going to last. Right. And the backbone of the industry <clears throat> was always the mom and pop bookstores. That was the way that the word of mouth was great. Um, those people recommended books right and left. Those mom and pop stores just don't exist. Amazon has burned through all. Yeah. You know, and it's one of those damn if you do, damn if you don't kind of things because when they tell you you can order anything from Amazon, they ain't kidding. But at okay. the same time, nobody can compete with Amazon. So, I mean, there it is. It's just something we have to live with and deal with and i think now like with the pandemic i mean the few that were hanging in there 
it isn't looking good, oh. you know, for a lot of this to be happening, which is really sad in a way. I mean, it's just. Oh, yeah. It, uh, remember when B. Dalton was around? Yes. Yes. That was another one that. In Borders. I used to do a lot of book signings yeah. at Borders, yeah. but that's way back in the day. And even Barnes and Noble. I did some book signings there back I in the early see. days. Uh, I was on vacation in Colorado when my first book hit the stand and we were camping out. And uh, I drove for two hours through the mountains to get to uh, Glenwood Springs, Colorado, to the B. Dalton, because somebody, a friend of mine, called me and said, B. Dalton's got your book. And I called the store, and the lady, I talked to the manager, told her who I was, and asked her if the books were there. She said yes. And the drive to see my book on the stand was so strong. I drove two hours and got there. And they could not have been nicer. They had tons of people in the store. They had put up a sign in the window that said I was on my way. <laughs> and yes, I signed books. And oh, it was it was one of those experiences. It's literally once in a lifetime, you know. Yeah. Drove two hours back to the campsite. It was dark by the time I got there. Oh, it was awful going through those mountains. But it was worth it. It was worth it. Never had that experience again because it's a like I said, first time, once in a lifetime thing. But seeing my book on the shelf of a bookstore was like, I almost can liken it to when my first child was born. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It is. It's very emotional. It is. It is extremely You're going, emotional. whoa, something that was invisible is now in the world. I mean, yeah, that's so I weird. Came out of my head, through my fingertips, and there it is. Yeah. It's very it was, profound. It was amazing. Amazing. And I think that's what keeps writers going, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of pain, and then there it is. Yep. And yep. it gets Absolutely. kind of addictive. Yep. And so. you literally, you're giving birth to it. So, yeah, that's. But definitely, absolutely. The people that I meet today that, that are trying to write, I really encourage them to learn their craft. It, it, to me, that's the most important thing. These ideas that everybody has, these story ideas, they're all great. Some of them work and some of them won't, but right. the skill that goes along with what we do is so vital. If you don't have it, It'll never work for you, not the way you want it to. Right. And I see people who dash off a book. Maybe they've got 150 pages or 200 pages. And they haven't checked the spelling. They have run on sentences. They have their characters doing things that are totally implausible. And I'm so big on characterization and dialogue that um, it's painful for me to read that kind of stuff. And for the longest time, Amazon was just publishing anything anybody sent. Right. They have learned the hard way um, that that's not a good idea. And But what they've done and enabled uh, buyers to read that first chapter or the first 20 or 30 pages, whatever that is, uh, to see if the writing is good, if the story hooks them. I think that's the best thing they've ever done. Yes. Because when I go to look at a book, if it doesn't catch me, really catch me good in the first two pages, I'm not going to spend my money. That's how it is. That's kind of bitchy, isn't it? But, <laughs> but that's how it is. I mean, you have to... Like you said, like that's the whole point of writing, right? In a that's in a fiction novel, is you got to hook them. Mm -hmm. If you don't hook them, I think that's even for nonfiction as well. I mean, I think the society in general has a much shorter attention span, and so you better be, you know, grabbing them right away, or it isn't going to happen, no matter really, what. You got to grab book. them on the first page. You know. Yes, def definitely. 
and that's uh, that's not always easy to do. And if you look at classic writing, um, they take a whole chapter, sometimes two or three, before they even introduce the main character. I mean, they describe the landscape. You know, read Jane Eyre for crying out loud. Right. Uh, you know, don't read Arthur Conan Doyle. But <laughs> when, I mean, I love that character. I've always loved that character. But my idea of Holmes is Basil Rathbone because that's what I grew up with watching those movies. Right. Uh, no, I I say that, but there are people who love Conan Doyle's work. It's very, very, very detailed. And it goes on and on and on and on about how he describes the crime scene. If that's your thing, great. But he couldn't sell today. Right. Because it's too slow. So the reading public wants more and they want it fast. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. They want you to jump right smack dab in the middle of the story. Take them on that ride, which is great. Unless that's not the way you write, then maybe romance is not your genre. Maybe something else. That's right. And every so often, the reading public goes through fads where they read a lot of this. Vampires. Yeah, vampires and the, the Walking Dead. The zombies, yes. Zombies and all of that. If that's your thing, great. I watched The Walking Dead for a while and pretty much got bored with it because it was the same old thing. <laughs> They're always walking down a road. I know. And zombies are blocking traffic. I don't get it. What's going on with that? I mean. <laughs> and they're know. walking so slow. Sam Hill, can't you get away from those people? Come on. <laughs> oh, and everybody mad. knows all you have to do to avoid vampires is wear garlic. Exactly. Well, what's the problem? Yeah. Just don't go out in the dark, you know. Here I am writing a mystery about a werewolf. Well, that's fun. I mean, you know, but, we haven't seen as many werewolves as well, we have. He's not your average run of the mill werewolf. He can't stand the sight of blood. All right. So, you know, and he hides himself away every month, every full moon, so he doesn't kill anybody. <laughs> But that's not his thing. He, he wants to try to live as normal as possible. He's a friendly werewolf. A werewolf. <laughs> that sounds good. The idea great. of a good life is not, you know, being covered with hair and a nice set of fangs. That's just what <laughs> but that's oh. also, that book is also the first time I, I wrote in first person. Oh. Yeah, I've done some first person things just simply because in nonfiction, that's what you're doing, you know, so it's kind of second nature. Yeah. But yeah, in the typical fiction, people are not doing it. Speaking of nonfiction, um, I just ordered uh, Ulysses S. Grant's memoirs. Very interesting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic um, documentary on the I think was it on the History Channel? The yes. one? No, that well, was fantastic. Yeah, it was on the History Channel. It was wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. It's what encouraged me to buy the book. Yeah, very interesting. A so, real champion for people. So Yes. Absolutely. Yes. He would have changed certainly changed the civil rights movement. He would have. Yeah. Sad. Absolutely. Um I We'll go back and write romance again, even though I'm writing mystery right now. I'm writing the second werewolf book. I think that's because that's what I began my career. I think that's what I'll always do some of. The uh, yeah. romantic interest in uh, Murder He Held is a vet tech who just so happened that she worked with the wolves in Yellowstone at the beginning of her career. So she knows all about wolves. Um, and he's, you know, he could teach her a thing or two. But I think 
there will be a definite romance probably by the third book but mm. because it's a series um the first one's called murder you know the second one's called bone voyage the third one is uh, <laughs> the third it. one is tooth for consequences <laughs> and the fourth one is fangs for the memory oh i love it so <laughs> I love it. We it's can't wait to see these. It's got a lot of humor. All the books have a lot of humor. But we need humor. That's what we oh, need. Oh, man. Do we ever. Yes. Do we ever. Uh, the pandemic is, I think, actually, the pandemic may produce some really decent writers. Some people who have not before had the chance to sit down and create have had that chance now. So we may see some really good stuff coming. Yeah, I feel like it's a real renaissance of some kind, you know, despite all but the- reading, the book sales have gone through the roof. Yes, that's and refreshing all, because for a while genres. I was worried, you know. Yeah. All genres, all genres. Yes, absolutely. So, um, yeah, but I think because people have been locked up, you know, I think we're gonna see some maybe good stuff coming. Yeah, I, I agree. So. I agree. I hope so too. Absolutely. I am. Um, I don't think we will see romance the way we saw it back in the eighties and early nineties. No. But I think all of this stuff. Uh, it's like COVID nineteen. It keeps mutating, changing. In some cases, growing. In some cases, not. I think that basic story will always exist. I mean, like I said, I used Jane Austen as an example. That's right. That was a romance. I love that. You know, um, Rochester. Oh my goodness, it was such a great experience. Um, all of it, sense of sensibility, all of that stuff. Yeah, I love that. When you boil it down, it was a romance. That's right. You know, even. Oh, well, maybe, you know, that's not a good example, but certainly Little Women. So many of the classics, if you boil them down, they're just a romance, just, but they're a romance. Because that's the basic plot. Boy meets girl, boy and girl have a conflict, they resolve it and live happily ever after. Yes, girl yeah. needs to settle the family's estate by marrying up. And you know, yeah. all that kind of stuff. They right know, down Abbey stuff. But there are also some basic themes that run through almost all romances. Cinderella. Right. Uh, Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast is a big one. Yeah. Uh, marriage of convenience. Oh my stars. Yes. Um, there are a lot of fairy tales that are romances. Yeah. And a lot of writers use that to pick up and Absolutely. But so Sandy, I, I know you're you've got a lot of books on Amazon, so we will put some links. Is your first werewolf book out yet or is it yes. not out yet? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. It is? Okay. Murder he Murder he howls. <laughs> I love it. I watched way too right. Angela Lansbury murder she wrote. I love it. Um, we will have the links down here in the show notes. And we can't wait to see the rest of this series that you have. You are a joy. You've been a dear friend of mine. And I Thank just, you. I want to give um, a place where the fiction writers get a chance to talk about their work because I just don't think there's a lot of that out there. So I'm really glad. No, and I really encourage anybody that's listening or watching. Really, if you're interested in writing, find yourself a writing group. Yes. There are many here in the city that are operating through uh, via Zoom, like we do. But I'm talking about straight romance. Dara is one of them, right? And VFW uh, writers. Um, even though there are people in those groups that write children's books and mystery and all that other stuff, their concentration is mainly romance fiction. It's a great way to learn. Yeah, always great speakers, techniques, yeah. and discussion, and just running things by people. It's very, very helpful. And more important almost than that is a 
their places to find yourself a romance buddy. Absolutely. Somebody who's also writing and learning. Somebody you can share with, depend on, get to read your stuff. It's That's a valuable tool. Absolutely. Even if you never intend to publish, but you want to write, do it. Do it. Yes, I agree. Do it. Why not? Especially now. We've got the time. Let's do this. Just do it. Just do it. All right, Sandy, you're amazing. Thank you for having me. I've had a good time. This has been great, and we will have you back. All right, dear friends, this is your episode of Healing Arts. We're going to continue talking to artists. Hello, writers, artists. That's what this show's about. So we'll see you next time on Healing Arts. We'll be right back. friends, guess what? I've got a new book coming out from Llewellyn Worldwide on March 8th called Heal Your Ancestors to Heal Your Life. This book is based on something I call genealogical regressions because sometimes when I'm working with clients, I go into their past lives and I realize this is not the source event of the challenge. We need to send light and love to ancestors in order to make our lives the wonderful places that we want to be. So I hope you'll check out my new book and stay tuned for class announcements, book signings, and more as March gets closer. Heal Your Ancestors to Heal Your Life coming March 8th from Llewellyn Worldwide. Welcome back to Healing Arts. I'm Dr. Shelley Kerr. Visit me online at www.pastlifelady.com. In other news, before we go, um, I am pleased to announce that my book, Past Lives with Pets, was just nominated for a COVR Visionary Award. This is a coalition for visionary resources. And so they, they're basically like the Academy Awards for woo, what I call woo-woo books, <laughs> metaphysical books. And so my book was actually nominated in the animal category. And so I just want to thank everybody for supporting Past Lives with Pets this year, um, which was a labor of love. I really love that book. And I'm just so grateful that it's been recognized. I mean, that's unbelievable. I don't think I've ever been nominated for such an award before. So, so thank you. And if you go out to my Facebook page, etc., um, and on my blog, or if you subscribe to my actual mailing list, if you go to Past Life Lady, this little box will appear. You can put your email address in. I don't send out much email, but I did just send out an email with the voting link for this. So um, go out to my Facebook page this week. And if you would vote for my book. I would be so, so grateful. And I thank you again from the bottom of my heart. So that's it for now. We've completed another episode of Healing Arts. I do have some very wonderful and exciting guests coming up on the show. And as usual, if you do have any guest suggestions, just send me an email at Shelly at ShellyCare.com. And let me know who you would like to hear from. So I hope you have a beautiful week. It is springtime. It is a lovely um, time of year to get out and just start enjoying as the society is finally starting to open up from the pandemic. So whatever you do, I just hope it's enjoyable. And just know that I can't wait to see you again on the next episode of Healing Arts. Hey, dear ones, it's Dr. Shelley. So I mentioned a while back that I started a new online school. Basically, my travel schedule, as you know, kind of got canceled this year. And so I converted a lot of my classes to the online format. And I have to tell you, this has been a complete joy and a complete blast. 
You can come on over and check the school out at healingarts.thinkific.com. And there you will find certification programs in Egyptian energy healing, my new Pythagorean healing series, and so much more with new courses being added all the time. And when you take one of my energy healing certification courses, you are invited to come on over to Zoom and join me personally for ongoing Zoom calls. And we have been having a complete blast. We've sent healing light out to people, out to animals, situations, the world, and everything in between. It's a great community, and I want you to join us. So check it out at healingarts.thinkific.com, and I'll look forward to welcoming you to a class very soon.